Hi there, welcome along to today's FSF um, podcast. I'm joined uh, by Anya from the education team at the FSF and also by Charlotte Rand, who is the head of primary at the British International School of Stockholm. Hello, welcome along. Um, I just thought we'd just start off. Could you give us a a brief introduction about yourself and your role at um, the BISS? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh, so I'm, I'm Charlotte. I came to Stockholm in 2011. Um, at that point, I was I got a job as the foundation and year one leader, which quickly became the foundation and key stage one leader. And then in 2017, um, there was sort of the opportunity to go for, at that point, we were calling it a vice principal. And at some point, it's morphed into head of primary, I think, as the role developed and we've reflected what it really was. Mm. we've become a head of primary and a head of secondary um this is about 40 years old but in 2013 2014 around then we expanded from a primary school to all through so we've gone through quite a rapid period of growth and change so it's a it's been an interesting time to be at a school doing that yeah that is a that is a massive change isn't it to yeah to go into that <laughs> um, yeah <laughs> That is really interesting. And I suppose, have you had to do that all in the same building or have you got different premises as well? Is it? Yeah. So we've got the the campus I'm on um, is where we were when I first arrived. It's not the original building. They did have a building somewhere else sort of in the village where we are, because we're about we're about a 10 minute train journey out of central Stockholm. So we're in quite a leafy suburb, which is really nice. And the other campus which is the secondary campus it's about a five five or ten minute drive from here um when we first opened it up we decided to put our year five six there as well and it makes it a really nice transition point for them and as that school has grown they have their own building so they're on the campus with the the secondary students but they have a, a safe building there so it's a more gradual transition for them and in that first few years when it was open, obviously they were getting to work in the science labs and things because there was only three year groups initially there. We, we just had up to year seven in this big rattling empty building. And uh, now, now they're bursting at the seams and we're looking for, our ideal is to have one purpose built all through building. But that's challenging to get space. Mm. And it takes time. Yeah, I think what you just said about the transition there, that that'd be fascinating to look more in uh, into that more detail I think it's um because that's something I've always found is that transition between five uh, sorry six and seven it's such a massive change for the children um so yeah so just bringing having them on the same campus at that point is quite an interesting idea yeah so now our big transition is year four to five in terms of that's when they move campus but of course they're still working in the same age range or the same mm-hmm. the same way with having a, a full-time class teacher and we do have specialist teachers but some of their specialist teachers are the same in year four and year six so they know their computing teacher they know their Swedish teachers uh, they know the mindfulness teacher and things like that so there's more consistency for them at that point. That is really interesting mm-hmm. and I think by the sounds of it makes transition a little bit smoother. Mm-hmm. It seems to be, yeah, and I think obviously for year year six and seven being on the same campus, if there is a sort of a pastoral concern, they've got the people right there to go and have a chat to. 
Just jumping back to um, sort of your role and your career in international education, what attracted you to that in, uh, initially and um, how did you get into working in, uh, abroad and internationally? So my very first school was an international job. And when I was training, I think throughout the entire of my fourth year, I knew I wanted to go and teach overseas. I didn't want to go backpacking for a year because I just spent four years doing this BAQTS and wanted to put it into action. But I also felt if I started teaching in the UK and doing my NQT year straight away, that I would probably get a bit stuck there and it would be harder to make the move later. But also I knew I'd looked into it with whatever the DFE was called back then. Um, and I knew I had to complete my induction within five years of having started teaching. So I always wanted to do a two year contract overseas and then come back to England. Um, at that time, I didn't really know what I wanted other than I wanted to teach overseas. So it was as jobs came up, it was a real sort of process of elimination of no, I don't think I fancy there. And I didn't get very many interviews, which I now understand that most international schools want you to have two years experience in the UK first. Um, they can now, some schools can now offer um, ECT programmes, but they're quite limited in which schools can do it. And you don't get the same kind of network as you do doing your ECT in the UK. Um, you might be linked to a UK provider and all those twilight sessions and things just you can't access them in the same way. So I, I came to understand later on why they did that. And then when I came out to Sweden, I'd thought about moving at other times in my career, but I wanted it to be for the right reasons. I didn't want to just move overseas because I was a bit unhappy in the school I was at or I was, I was frustrated there. But I'd got to the point in my last school that um, I couldn't progress any higher. And it was, I felt I was working very hard. I was foundation stage leader, maths coordinator. I ran a um, partnership with a play school who were on the same campus, but weren't part of our school. I was leading a communication language and literacy development program in our school and supporting with the rollout of that across the county. And all those kind of things that you do but we didn't, the school I was in, we couldn't afford leadership release time. So with all of those responsibilities, I had two hours, five minutes PPA on Friday afternoon, and I had no budget either. So I'd, I'd reached the progression of how I felt I could grow in that school. Um, but I also knew I couldn't sustain the workload there. So it was time to look again and there just wasn't anything coming up in the UK at that time. And I mean, it might sound strange now with the recruitment crisis, but in 2011, I couldn't move sideways into a TLR position. They didn't really exist. You didn't, they don't get advertised. Um, and the only deputy headships, which is what I was looking at, they all involved sort of a good hour commute along a motorway. And I just didn't fancy that. And I always used to look at the international jobs on the Times Ed just out of curiosity. And one came up that just everything just sort of fit. It was for a little bit more than I was doing in terms of the year groups I was leading. They were looking at someone possibly with a math specialism. And that's the subject I was leading at that time. And everything just felt right. So I just applied out of curiosity and, uh, and I got it. Mm, that's good. So I was quite lucky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
it's just yeah i think jump like jumping to a new country is a massive leap isn't it it's um it's something i probably would have liked to have done but i ju- it just never as you say it just never fell right for me um yeah and i think everything has to fall in, into place at the right time doesn't it yeah and that that literally was it all all fell into place at the right time and I know when I moved over to Sweden, a lot of people asked, I mean, even though I was in my 30s already, but a lot of people asked, well, how does your mum feel about it? And at that time, my brother was in the army. And when I moved here, he was in Afghanistan or Iraq, I can't remember. So quite honestly, me being in Stockholm was more than fine for her. Okay. And just thinking about having taught in both sort of in Sweden and in the UK, how how do the educational systems um, differ between the two? Um, I don't feel like I can say that much about how the Swedish system works because we're mm. we're operating outside it. Um, but I think when you work in an international school, the environment of your host country can influence it quite a lot. Um, Sweden is quite sort of liberal so we've not got some of the challenges you might in some international schools I do remember talking to somebody who was teaching in I think South America a long a good 20 years ago but the school policy there was if someone comes into your school and they want to kidnap a pupil you let them take them because that's safer for the other students um for me I couldn't work in an environment like that (laughs) Oh, having having a more similar environment has definitely suited me. Mm. But I think at an international school, you often have more freedom than you probably do in a state school in the UK. Um, we are accredited. We choose to be accredited by COBIS, who's the Council of British International Schools. But it's not like the experience of an Ofsted inspection. Mm. It's um, It's a lot more supportive and... Certainly, I feel we have a lot more freedom to make choices because we believe they're right for children's learning rather than we need to tick a box. Right. That is really interesting. And I think especially about how the host Hmm. country can influence the school. I've also worked internationally and I've also heard similar stories. Yeah. I mean, I recently visited a couple of schools in Bucharest and the security at those schools was really tight. So it was all turnstiles to get in. Um, whereas for a school in Sweden, the fact that we have um, a sort of closed campus and locked doors and video security to get in, that's considered quite high security. So you have something in Sweden called Alamans Rata, which is every man's right. And so people actually have the right to walk through our playground at any time. Obviously, we dissuade them and ask them not to, but it's not a, a country where you're going to have six foot high fences and locked gates to even get onto the grounds. So things like that can be, can really affect your day-to-day running of a school as well. Um, I think Swedish values are probably quite similar to British values. So in that respect, it's it's a very similar environment to work in. So you lead us on to our next question very well, which was, are there any similarities between the education system in the UK and the one at your school? And if so, can you provide any examples? So we um, we consider ourselves to be a British international school. So we've probably got a more British approach. 
um, we follow the English age range. You know, we have sort of reception year one, year two. That can need a lot of explaining to people coming from different countries who think that we're skipping their child ahead a year or holding them back. Um, what we hear from parents coming in from Swedish schools is that they like what they consider to be the British approach to behaviour. There's a lot of focus in Sweden on pupils' rights, but some people feel it's not about pupils' responsibilities. Um, so they feel like our behaviour approach is... Some parents would say strict. We don't think we're strict, but we have high expectations for behaviour. Um, so things like our secondary students wouldn't have their mobile phones out, but in a Swedish school, they'd be quite used to it. Um, so other similarities and differences with the British system. We follow the Cambridge primary curriculum for our English and maths, which is very similar to the English national curriculum at the moment. Some schools will follow the English national curriculum, some international schools will. We have, apparently our displays look very British. It's what people tell us when they come on a tour, that it looks like a British school. And I think that is that style of having bright, colourful displays of children's work on, on the walls. Um, mm. I didn't know that was a British thing, but apparently it is. <laughs> it it kind of, I'm thinking about what you're saying and just the, the similarities and everything. But what also about challenges that you faced working in the international school? So especially as you say, it's a British international school. I imagine that would be slightly different challenges to um, another international. So I've, I've been chatting with um, an international school which follows the Indian curriculums. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's to me, it's it really opened my eyes. But some of the challenges you maybe faced and how have you overcome them? I think in, in challenges you have, if, if you're a really international school and your your community is made up predominantly of expats, you will have a high turnover of students. So the average length of stay for an expat family at our school is sort of three to three and a half years. And we can lose about a third of our students at the end of each year. So in, even in year four, you might not have students who were with you in reception. So thinking of sort of children's starting points at different times and where they come in, that really affects how you approach the learning because you, you've really got to have a secure understanding of where that child is. Um, for us, we have a real focus on progress over attainment because we do have children from 50 different nationalities and they might start us, they, they might start with us in year two and that could be their first real formal learning experience. Um, they might start with absolutely no English. Sometimes they're adapting. If a child moves to Stockholm in January and they come from somewhere that's really hot and sunny, they might have never put on a snowsuit before and they might have never seen snow before and they've gone from wearing shorts and t-shirts and just being able to run around to having to put on what feels like quite restricted clothing and they've got to suddenly think about putting straps from their snow boots or from their trousers over their snow boots otherwise they're going to get snow in and they've got to wear all these different layers and things because we go outside until minus 15 and that can be, even something like that can be a hard transition for children. Um, simple things might confuse them, like if you're used to using chopsticks, this knife and fork that you're suddenly presented with can look strange. Um, one of our pastoral leaders is doing a lot of work at the moment into third culture kids, who are children who've spent 
a significant portion of their life in a country that's not their their passport country if you like and how that affects their sense of identity and even just asking some of our children where you come from is it's a difficult question because they don't really know and it could be that they were born in one country and one of their parents speaks these two languages and the other parent speaks these two languages and now they're in a British school learning English but also learning Swedish because they're living in Sweden so the effect on their identity and self-esteem can be quite significant as well I think for me, um, minus 15 is enough of a challenge. I think it's like <laughs> if you've got the right that genuinely that saying about um, there's no such thing as bad yeah. weather, just bad clothing. You've got to have the right clothes. Yeah. <laughs> so thinking about that, how do you support? How does so? When I worked in international school, we had a really solid community within the school that I think helped. The children could find themselves there, I think, and um, it was supportive of the parents and like the external family. Everybody, we were like one big family, really. I've never worked anywhere like that where you are uh, such a like a tight knit community because your commonality is the school, basically. Um, so, how do you think that an international school uniquely supports this. It's quite a culture shock, really, when a child first joins a school and maybe they don't have the language. And like you said, they're presented with things that they've never seen or used before. How do you think that's supported within that community? Yeah, I think you're so right with talking about the, how unique that community of an international school is. And um, it can be just as hard for the parents as it can for the children sometimes one parent has given up their job to follow the other parent and come over and there can be a lot of frustration for them as well um, there can be barriers for them if you've got a child with learning needs and you suddenly have to navigate support systems in a different language and you don't know yet how it works that can be really challenging so I think having having strong strong homeschool links is really important um, we try and make sure that the teachers have a meeting with the new parent within about two weeks of the child settling just to have that face-to-face -face contact and a catch-up about how it's going. But you need to be very visible and very present so that they know who you are. Um, I think this is a culture that has changed because I've been here for 10 years. But when I came, this was the first school I'd been at where parents had our email addresses. And sort of 10 years ago, I was a little bit worried about how that would work but on the whole it, it is fine and it was really important to have that contact and tours are obviously very important to parents when they're coming over but not all parents get to visit the school before they start particularly during covid so they couldn't come to the country they were signing up to a school they'd never seen so taking that time to show parents around if they want that when they've started um having a strong PTA is really important, having good communication, because it's not just about the events that are going on, but it is they need to know what what's this thing we're doing next week called Lucia? Why do I need to suddenly buy tinsel on a white dress for my child? What What's happening? And where's the place I go for a birthday party? Where do I go to buy them a snowsuit? It's not just help with coming to school, it's, it's everything. Um, and we've just been relaunching sort of post-COVID lots of those parent workshops so that 
parents can understand our approach to things because again they come from completely different backgrounds and things like forest school and phonics we can't assume that all parents know what they are or have experienced them before yeah i think that's really interesting and it's such an important part of making sure that both the families and the children feel safe and accepted especially when um they might not be able to speak you know fluent enough yet to be able to get their feelings and emotions across so to be able to feel that that community is around you both your the parents feel that and the child feels that I think is super important yeah yeah that sense of belonging is really important Mm. yeah and it just shows how important those relationships that you have like with the children the families every and the, between the staff as well how, how important they are um and i mean we, we're going to ask how it compares to that in the uk um i'm not i think you've already got kind of touched on that really it's um because i think you've just really highlighted those challenges which are still present i think in uk schools um but maybe not to the same level for a lot of the families um yeah so- and I think the like the school becomes such a crucial part of your mm. life and it can be your social life as, as a staff member or as a parent um it can be your your lifeline on so many occasions as well mm. so I think moving on sort of um think about your, your role and the work you do at um this just what is the most enjoyable or rewarding part of it? Um, it it's my afternoons in nursery. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I couldn't do it if I was in nursery full time. Reception, absolutely. Nursery, I couldn't do it full time. But I have the luxury of walking in when our brilliant nursery teacher has established great routines, great expectations. And I just get to go and have fun with them. Um, this year I've mixed it up a little bit and I also get to work with one of our year one classes and go and do some writing with them every Friday morning. So yeah, what, whatever you've been doing, people will sometimes say, oh, I know you're really busy this week. Are you sure you've still got time to come? Like, yes, absolutely. That's really good. Yeah. And I think just working with the children and getting to know them, it goes back to that sort of building those relationships with them as well. Yeah. Mm. Um, so just moving on a little bit, what advice would you give to someone considering a, a career in teaching at an international school? I think trying to trying to think about what's important to you before you start applying. Um, I know a lot of people who apply for our school tell us it's because we're a not-for-profit school. So any money that we have goes back into the children's education. It's not going into an owner's wallet. And that's important to a lot of people. Um, We are non-selective. I know sometimes when I was applying for schools for my first job, one of them reassured me, don't worry, we have entrance tests to get into nursery. And I decided there and then that entry test for nursery was not what I'm about. So that wasn't going to be the school for me. Um, I think also looking into the country you're moving to and whether that country is likely to to suit your lifestyle. I know some people get put off coming to Sweden because they worry about the the winter, particularly if they're quite outdoorsy people. Um, 
you don't need to worry about the winters here you know if, if you're outdoorsy that's perfect it's time for going skiing and cross-country skiing and skating not for me those things aren't for me but <laughs> if, if that's what you like that's great for them um thinking as well about things like the salary so people will again with sweden people will often worry that it's a really expensive country but our pay reflects that um my husband used to teach in Spain and he said his salary was great for when he was in Spain. But as soon as he was back in the UK on holiday, he was really worried about sort of getting around in or something at the bar because the salary was great for Spain, but not for England. So looking at that, um, I would say what I've probably learned is about looking for is the school accredited, who's it accredited by because that will give you a sort of quality assurance mark as well. If it's if it's been through COBIS or a CIS accreditation or something like that, you know there's a bit of quality assurance going on. And if you can, you know, if, if you're looking at the job applications for a few years, trying to get an idea of the turnover, um, a lot of jobs being advertised if it's a school in a period of growth is fine. Um, if it's a school that's advertising, that's there's a stable school and it's advertising every year, I guess the same as in the UK. Mm. Have a think about why that is and really use the interview process. If you if you go through with it and you get to interview, remember that it's a two way thing and it's time for you to check out if that school's the right school for you as well. Mm. Yeah. It's good. It's really good advice there, I think, for anyone considering it. It's um, I think. As I said, it's something I had considered. I just it, things just never fell into place for me. But it's um yeah, all very good. Now you've also I, I think I I probably know that your answer to the next question is going to reflect your experience in the classroom. But I was just going to say, would you like to share a memorable story or experience from your time um, working at the school, and one that's possibly had a significant impact on you or your students? I think. One A very early one from um, the start of my time in Sweden was in 2012, we had a whole school, so it's just primary at that point, we had a whole school project on the Olympics, which obviously it was the London Olympics that year, but I think it was also the 100th anniversary of the Stockholm Olympics. And um, they did the year sixes. I remember at some point they somehow got a red London bus and were going around different embassies and they collected flags. And we had a day at the Stockholm Olympic Stadium with the entire school. And it literally, you know, it started with a flag parade and they'd all decided which country they were going to sort of walk behind the flag. Um, I think we had someone coming in with an Olympic torch. We had an Olympic athlete. They did sort of sports day style activities there all day. Uh, there was an Olympic athlete who gave them medals and things like that. And just having that really unique, here's, here's our Swedish Olympic stadium, but we're also celebrating London 2012 and having the whole school involved and all reflecting their different, uh, their different heritage and their different home countries. I think that was a really sort of unifying experience like we said earlier about that sense of belonging and getting them all to sort of take part together was a really special memory um other special memories i think probably at the moment something i'm really enjoying is how we've developed forest school 
So we've not got a forest on campus, but we've got a forest about a 10 minute walk away. And it started in reception in 2012 when I was in reception and then it gradually spread out. Um, and it was one of our positives that came out of COVID actually was the last few year groups on our campus started going to forest school. So we now have from nursery to year four, every year group goes at least once a fortnight to the forest. That's good. And it's that, I mean, I love forest school. I think it's, it's such a great opportunity for the children. Um, and yeah, to be able to offer that to a wider range of year groups is fantastic. Yeah. Mm. And then apart from that, I suppose the, the one I love every year is, um, I mentioned something earlier called Lucia and it's December the 13th. It's the Swedish Festival of Light. And we have an outside, although it's December, we have an outside performance in the dark with all of the children in these costumes over their snowsuits. So they look all sort of like the Michelin man, but <laughs> with lots of tinsel, just singing these really beautiful Swedish songs. Uh, so that's always a really special day as well. Okay. Um, sorry if you could hear my dog barking just saying that. <laughs> Apologize. <laughs> okay. Um, there's definitely someone at the door. <laughs> um, so how do you envision the future of international education I suppose you can only answer that in terms of your setting unless you can answer that for more settings um, and what do you feel other educational settings could learn from the international curriculum or the curriculum that you use um, I suppose with the future for our setting we've like I said we've gone through a big period of growth um, expanding into an all-through school and we're just at the point where we've been reviewing our, sort of our vision and values and just today we've been working with our extended leadership team to look at how we're going to go through the whole curriculum review process and just having we've got that freedom to build completely what we want which can be a little bit daunting because you are starting from scratch but also it is the freedom to do exactly what you want. And I think that's that's always something that's great about working in an international school. Um, and I've done it once here already, just with the foundation. In my second year here, our principal gave us the freedom to build a foundation curriculum, which I think is how I first started sort of hassling Ben about <laughs> when, when we'll tapestry let us upload yeah. our own curriculum. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. Because have, having your own curriculum is great, but it does create some challenges for, for things like that. Um, so it's, it's an exciting time for us because the school's been in that period of growth and you've had lots of new staff come in and it can get a little bit disjointed. So I think to, to really pull everyone together, get those really unified ideas, hear everyone's voices and build something that works for us and for our school and our community is a, a daunting but exciting opportunity. Well, I think that's a, a really nice place to to finish off tonight. I think it's, um, but no, I just want to thank you again for your time um, and for sharing so many little gems for, for anyone considering working in an international school. I think there's a lot of messages to take home from this. So. So, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you.